Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Thursday, July 16th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe and healthy during this crazy, crazy time we're all living in. Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I recorded earlier today with the program director of the Middlesex Magic, Michael Crotty Jr. The Middlesex Magic is a youth basketball AAU program based in Massachusetts that also has teams all around the New England area. They're just a top-notch, first-class organization. Uh, Coach Crotty sets the bar really, really high. I played with a couple of their alumni in college, played against dozens of their alumni during my time at Wesleyan. They're just a a great program, uh, great coaches, great kids, and they're just doing great, great things. So I had a great conversation with Coach Crotty earlier today, and I'm pumped for everyone to get a chance to listen to it uh, and learn more about the great things that they're doing with that whole program. Uh, Before we get to the podcast, I just want to shout out for Recommendation Corner this week. Uh, You know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of things you can watch. There's a lot of things that you can read. It's kind of like the golden age of content. I also just, you know, I shout it out on, on Tuesday, but, you know, you get to the end of the day, you're tired, just things to almost turn your mind off at, at the end of the day. The Great British Baking Show is really one of those shows that once you watch a couple episodes, you get really hooked. I've been watching a lot the last day and a half. It just, it, it hooks you in because it's not professionals, it's amateurs doing their thing just just for the love of it, so... Uh, I want to shout that out. All the seasons are on Netflix if you have a Netflix account. So without further ado, I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back, I will be joined by the program director of the Middlesex Magic, Michael Crotty Jr. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the director of the Middlesex Magic, Michael Crotty Jr., a Massachusetts native, he was a standout high school player at Belmont High School and completed a post-grad year at Phillips Exeter Academy. He played his college ball at Williams College, where he was a four-year starter, two-time All-American, 1,000-point scorer, finished as the all-time assist leader at Williams, and helped lead the team to win the 2003 National Championship game. After his senior season, he was named the Bob Cousy Award winner for the best college point guard in New England across all three divisions. After graduation, he toured overseas and ended up playing one year of professional basketball in Germany before returning to Massachusetts as the director of player development for the Boston Celtics and helped the team on their way to win the 2008 NBA championship. He then took over for his father as the director of the Middlesex Magic, a premier AAU and youth basketball program in Massachusetts, where he has coached dozens of dozens of college players at all three levels as well as two current NBA players, Pat Connaughton of the Milwaukee Bucks and Duncan Robinson of the Miami Heat. I'm thrilled he's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? It's going well, thank you. That was a very nice introduction. I appreciate it and uh, excited to be here to talk some hopes with you. For sure. So so as I mentioned uh, at the top, you're a Massachusetts native, but, but kind of just like let's start at the beginning. Uh, growing up in Massachusetts, how did you first you know get involved with the game of basketball? You know, growing up, my, my dad was an athlete, um, and and he played a bunch of different sports. I think um, basketball was his best sport. He was a really good high school player. Um, had some college opportunities, but decided to join the Marine Corps uh, after high school instead. And so, athletics were always in my life. I played a lot of sports. I remember at a really young age, though, 
just really gravitating toward basketball. And as a as a now dad of two very little boys, uh, three years old and six months, I'll you know, we'll encourage them to play all sports. I think it's great. I know there's a lot of specialization at a young age now, um, and I think playing multiple sports is really good for for athletes. Mm-hmm. But I also remember at a very young age telling my dad that I I just wanted to play basketball. <laughs> and I do think that sometimes kids just know, and when they do, um, if it becomes a really a strong passion and something that they can build good habits and work ethic and, and, and accountability and things like that. You just know. And, um, you know, so I, 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 my dad definitely put the ball in my hand. My mom was great too. I mean, I, I had the little, you know, all the Fisher price hoops, the hang yep. on the ball kind of hoops, all of that. And, um, so yeah, it was definitely a young age and, and, um, something that I, I drew a lot of you know, excitement out of and a lot of, uh, enjoyment out of. So I, I loved it from as far back as I can remember. So as, as you mentioned, your, your dad was a coach and he coached you in high school, not as a head coach, but as the assistant coach at Belmont, kind of just, what was that like to have your dad be kind of the assistant coach? Yeah. So, so he coached me as a youth player with the Middlesex magic program mm-hmm. that he started. And then we had a really a hall of fame high school coach by the name of Paul Lyons, who was great and coached at uh, Belmont for 25 plus years, one state title. Um, he asked my dad to help. So what my dad actually did was he coached the freshmen who were, um, I think he did it the year I was a sophomore and I was able to play four years of varsity, even though as a freshman, I was really, really small. Uh, so as a sophomore, I started and he would occasionally, like he sit on the bench if like the freshman game ended on time. Cause back mm-hmm. then the freshman would play away. We'd play home. Yep. So it was interesting. His, um, his role was one of being, he, he was, he was a quiet voice on that team because our head coach was, was a legend. And I know my dad really didn't want to be a loud voice on that coach, uh, on that staff, but, um, but it was cool. It was, you know, he was always a very calming influence for me as a player. Um, even into my college days, I, I think I could, I could find him in the stands at halftime and just make some eye contact and get a yep. kind of a pro- approving nod. He, he wasn't the dad coaching from the stands um like i said he coached me in the off season when i was young but it was always nice because he he was he was good with x's and o's but he was he was really talented at motivating and imploring his players to to get excited to go and do things he, he believed they could do and i think he put a lot of belief in, in everyone he coached and i know he put a lot of belief in me and it helped me really kind of strive to try and become the best player I could be for sure so coach we've, we've kind of seen in the last five to ten years the the prep school scene in New England has really blown up all these great players from not just all around the northeast but also you know the, the mid-atlantic and, and even some west coast kids are coming sure. east to play in the NEPSAC prep schools you you know you were at very ahead of this this trend kind of just what appealed to you about doing a prep year in the late 1990s well again i gotta i gotta go back to my mom and dad so neither my mom and dad um were were college grads and i think the biggest thing they wanted from my sister and me was to ensure that we were college grads if not beyond and not only to get the most education but to get the best education we could um i was a i was a very good student. Um, I wasn't, you know, maybe the kind of person that could go to Harvard or Yale or Williams uh, all by myself. But as we know, there's hooks and everything. And yep. I was a, I was a pretty good athlete. So when I was a senior, all I wanted in the world was a scholarship. And 
I had a, I had really looked up to a player from our town who who played the Division two basketball level on a scholarship and then played overseas. And he kind of showcased these things. I was like, wow, I, I want to play. I want to go to school for free, and then I want to play overseas. And, you know, and and um, ironically, I got an offer from St. Michael's, which is exactly where he went to to take a full scholarship. I wanted to take it. More irony or coincidence is that my sister, who was five years older than me, went to St. Michael's, okay. not an athlete. But it was really the only school I knew. And I considered it heavily. My junior year, a year prior, my dad had taken me to look at Exeter, Cushing, and Northfield Mount Hermon. I'll never forget. And I was saying, Dad, I, I don't want to do an extra year of high school. You know, like yeah. what kid back then really is looking to go to a, a prep school or, you know, a private school as a, as a graduate of high school and all their friends are going to college? And, but I was going to be a 17-year-old kid when I graduated. I had a late you know, summer birthday. And physically, I could really use the year. On top of it, by virtue of getting into a place like Exeter, it then opened up the doors like, all right, maybe you can go play in the Ivy League. Maybe you can go play in the NESCAC. Maybe you can gain admission to one of the top, most elite schools in the world. And my parents really pushed me. I think a lot of people would have said, take the scholarship. But my parents said, no, this is, this is going to be a really life-changing opportunity. So I went to Exeter. Um, which I mean, one year there, you know, it, it made a, it made the biggest difference in my life. You know, I, you know, you only spend one year in a place and, um, you know, you're really getting comfortable and then it's time yeah. to leave, but it, it helped me, it provided me the opportunity to, to gain everything I wanted. And, um, you know, I visited a bunch of schools. I was kind of down the list a little bit with the Ivies and, um, and I got that and that was okay by me. And, you know, Williams and Amherst and Tufts all, you know, offered me spots and were recruiting me hard. And I, I just fell in love with Williams and, and off I went, but that decision to, to do a prep year, which back in 1999, 2000, you're right. Uh, you know, David, it wasn't as common as yeah. it is now. And obviously now kids leave in the middle of high school and they repeat their sophomore, they repeat their junior. That's kind of more of the trend. Although mm-hmm. the postgrad is still a, a big thing, but I think that my parents, had a lot of foresight and they're willing to sacrifice for me. And I thank God for that every day, you know, and it, and it was a great year and it really, it changed the, the course of my life right. for sure. So, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but your, your college coach who was recruiting you at Williams was coach Dave Paulson, who was one of the mm-hmm. best coaches in Williams history. Also coach Hickson who just retired at Amherst was, was recruiting you. Just what was it like to have those two great coaches at the Division Three level really interested in you? You know, Coach Shellen at Tufts yeah. is also a great coach. But kind of just what what was the deciding factor about Williams over those other great schools and great basketball programs? Sure. Well, one one thing that um, is, is a little different about that. So Harry Sheehy mm-hmm. was the coach at Williams at the time. Okay. He was actually recruiting me. He became the athletic director in May of 2000 prior to my arrival. So I actually okay. didn't get recruited by Paulson, but Paulson played for Sheehy. And of course he called when he got the job. So I was getting, but, but again, Paulson was uh, about to become a legendary coach. He yeah. already was one. Hickson already was one. Sheldon already was. So I really had three outstanding coaches um, recruiting me. Tufts, Tufts I knew, right? Tufts is where I worked out in the summer. Bobby uh, Sheldon is a great dear friend now. He's a dear friend of my dad's. I, I always loved Tufts. You know, you know, you get that Williams Amherst rivalry. Obviously, that sets in once you choose one. But yeah. both places are unbelievable. I mean, I had I had uh, amazing visits at both. The Williams was my last visit. It was Halloween weekend. It was unseasonably warm. <laughs> I just, you know, you talk to kids, and maybe you had this, maybe you didn't. But sometimes you go somewhere, and everything clicks. Yeah, you just feel the vibe, and it, it all makes sense. The people, 
the place, the spirit. And I think that was the biggest thing. The people across the board at Williams were friendly and, and smart and they pushed you. And, you know, I got to go to a couple classes. I got to play with the team. I got to socialize. Uh, Everything about it just made perfect sense to me. I liked the other places a lot, but uh, I fell in love at first sight with Williams because of the people. And, And again, you know, I also think it's about as picturesque a New England college yep. setting as you could have out in the Berkshires. It was, it just came together for me, you know. For sure. So, you know, the in Division Three, it's it's not like you know, there's in the way we see in Division One with a lot of five star players or highly recruited high school players who are almost starting early on, either as you know because they want to go to the NBA or really now we see sometimes to try to encourage them not to transfer. But you were a four-year starter at Williams. Just, just what was that like your freshman year? You find out from new first-year head coach Dave Paulson that, hey, you're going to be the guy with the ball in your hands as a starter on a really good Williams team. You know, it was a goal of mine. Um, Jimmy Sheehy was the point guard the year prior. He was a senior. He played 35 minutes a game. He was a captain and a really, really strong player for Williams' team for a long time. For Harry Sheehy, no relation. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, you know, I, I was a guy that looked at a lot of things, David. I mean, I, I saw that they had a couple of junior guards who were vying for the backup role behind Jimmy, and I'm sure we're hoping, expecting to start. And I just thought to myself, well, hey, I'm, I'm coming into a, a team where they don't have a point guard that's played a lot of minutes. And right. nothing's promised, and these guys haven't really gotten it yet. And even if they had, I wanted to displace them, and I wanted to earn it. And um, it was a definite goal. But it is interesting, as you know, being a college athlete, when you're a freshman, there's, you know, um, there's a little bit of a hierarchy, right? You give yeah. your respect to the veterans and things like that. But once once you play, you know, everybody's just a player, you know, and and, um, and I worked hard and did everything that I could to try and try and earn the job all fall. And um, and then, you know, once the season started, um, you know, uh, first week, I, I think it was, you know, I, I played well and kind of outplayed those guys and. When we first broke out to you know black and gold was our was our practice uniforms. He had me right mm-hmm. with the with the black team, and uh, so that was kind of a, that. I remember that moment. I mean, that was a day where I, where I kind of figured out, okay, hey, it looks like I'm doing pretty well here, and I'm earning the job. Right. And um, and it was great. I mean, I started with with another. You know, there was a sophomore. We had some other seniors. So so as a point guard and a vocal leader, it definitely you know you had a. It's not like I was just playing with a bunch of guys my age. You then have to learn how to lead guys yeah. that are older than you or guys that think they know more than you or things like that. So there is a management around that and personalities and things of that nature that I was always aware of and you try to balance and measure. But um, it was an honor, you know, and I think, um, you know, to to he who much is given or to he who, who earns much, uh, much is expected yeah. was something that Coach Paulson used to say. And, and um, so I took that responsibility very, very heavily. And I worked hard to try and be a, as good a player as I was and try and help that team. Uh, I think they had won, I think Williams had won 20 games somewhere in the neighborhood of eight to 10 years in a row. Oh, wow. And all I remember thinking was we got to win 20 games every year. <laughs> and we can't be the team that breaks that. And, you know, we were able to accomplish that, and um, and uh, it was it was a it was, it was great to start as a freshman. Though I mean, I remember it was a goal, and I was happy to get it get it done. So fast forwarding a couple uh, a couple years now, you're headed into the 2003 uh, season, the, the 2002-2003 season. Just mm-hmm. you're prepping that summer. You're you're getting ready in the fall. Was was there just a kind of feeling around uh, 
that group of guys like, hey, like th- we could actually go all the way? You know, the it was the year before that set that song. I think so. Freshman year, I think we were twenty one and seven, mm-hmm. and then the next year, we had no seniors. I think there was one, and it didn't work out. And so we play, we had the whole year with not one senior. So everybody felt they were a year older. As sophomores, we felt like juniors. Our juniors felt like seniors. That year, we went twenty two and six, but we won an NCAA game. We were decidedly better than we were the year before, even though the, the record was only a one game difference. That year was so big because we brought everyone back. Right. We brought everybody back. So we knew we were going to be good. I think we were, I know we were ranked top 10 in the country preseason. We could have even been top five. And one of them, I remember it was uh, basketball news was bigger back then. D3 Hoops was coming on. They were still really, you know, D3 Hoops was young then. Um, but we were, we were, we had expectations. Um, but until you've, I mean, we won an NCAA tournament game and then we lost at Rochester. So like, it's not like we went to the final four. Yeah. We're like, okay, we got everybody back, you know? So what I remember most about that team was our great balance. We had amazing chemistry. We had no, we had no, no squabbles in the locker room. Everybody loved each other. I mean, we competed, we went at each other, but then at the end of the day, you shower up and you go eat and you, and you leave it all on the floor. Right. And um, so I remember with that squad that, that we had those things going and, and then we just took it game by game. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. we, you know, we we wound up 31-1, and one, but we literally just thought about it one game at a time. And Coach Paulson was great with that. And we respected every opponent, and we never took anything for granted. And um, I think, you know, one of, our, one of our starters the year prior who led us in scoring had an injury. He was out the whole first semester. And we started another guard who had a really strong defensive presence. So... With, with myself kind of being a point guard and offensive-minded guy who could score and, and, and pass, we had two excellent big guys, Drew DeMuth, Ben Coffin, and then we had two great defensive guards with Chuck Abba and Jarris Cole. And by the time Tim Fullen, who's the guy that got injured, was 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 healthy, I think we were like 9-0 and and um, leading the country in point differential and rebound margin and assist to turnover and you know, Tim let us in scoring the year before, and right. he took on, he took on a role off the bench. And I thought his leadership in that way was huge. There's a lot of guys that could have made that a very difficult situation. And say this is my job, and all he did was score 11 and a half points a game off the bench, shooting 47 percent from three. <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable. So, so we were deep. I mean, we brought him off the bench, a six five shooter. We brought another six five shooter off the bench, Tucker Kane. So we had depth up front. We had depth at guard, and um. And I, you know, I don't think it was until you finished the year, you know, you, you know, we win the NESCAC championship at Amherst, beating them on their home court and you finish the year and you're like, okay, we're, we're 26 and one. Right. And we have a bye back then. I think it was like 61 teams, right? So we had, we actually had to win five games to win the NCAA tournament, not six. And, and we knew that, um, that, you know, like three of those games would be in our home gym, you know? Yeah. So all of a sudden, there's a moment then, I remember being like, wow, we're 26 and one. Like, this is, but then you just let that thought go right out of your head. Like, it doesn't matter. You need to go one and oh five times. And um, I think that was just a mentality that team took on. We had a lot of great leaders. We had a lot of great players. And um, yeah, it was was a special year. I can't tell you that fall. We were like, oh yeah, we're going to cut the nets down in Salem. Mm -hmm. But I know that we had high expectations. We wanted to win the league. We wanted to win the little three. And, and we wanted to make a deep NCAA tournament run, and um, and it came together really well for us. So that season and, and kind of that that time period, it was you know 
it w- maybe wasn't the best period for the Amherst Williams rivalry, but it was definitely up there. You guys were awesome. Amherst was awesome. As you mentioned, you're in the NCAA tournament. You, you see that, hey, the road to the Final Four is running through Williamstown. You see that they're on your side of the bracket. When, when it came time for the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, Amherst is right there. If, if you match up, it's going to be the fourth time. And when you end up facing them, it was the fourth time. Was was there a little bit of like, are you serious? Like, we got to play these guys again? Yeah, for sure. You know, it's a it's a great rivalry. Um, and and I actually think in 2003 and four, it, it, it to, I think it reached its peak because we were both ranked in the top five the entire year. Mm-hmm. And I know they've had some great battles since. And I know they had great battles prior. Um, but yeah, for sure. Not only is it your rivals there, which brings an extra bit of intensity to the game, but we're twenty six and one. Well, guess what? The one loss was to them. Yeah. <laughs> so even though we were two and one and had beaten them in in, uh, in the championship game, it's like, man, we got to play the one team that's beaten us. And um, you know, uh, my dad, you know, who we've touched on a bit already, he picked me up to take me over to the game, you know, pregame and. And he asked me how I was feeling. I said I was a little bit nervous. And he said, well, hey, that's just excitement. That's the same feeling. Yeah. You guys are ready to go. And, um, you know, and he told me we, we were going to win. We we're going to win big. He gave me some a jolt of confidence. And it was 44 to 42 at half. Um, we were up two. We hit 11 of 13 threes in the second half and, and kind of ran them out and won by 17. And, um, you know, it, that game is a great memory, that second half, when you're when you're down to six, seven minutes and you're up 15 to 18 yeah. on an amazing, amazing team, but your arch rival who you want to kill <laughs> and, and you're up and you kind of know it's over. Um, that was a pretty special feeling because not only did you beat them, you're going to cut down the nets and you're going to go to the final four. And right. when you walk into Chandler gymnasium and, and as a, as a freshman in 2000, you see final four banner 97, final four banner 98, uh, those Mike Miguel led teams. You say, I, you know, we want one of those. We want two of those. And, and we want to want to take it to new heights, and so going through Amherst made it all the more special. Um, and then and then down down to Salem we went for for the final four. But yeah, no, it was it was you know and and beyond that, David, the next year mm-hmm. they sent him out of region <laughs> and they win their bracket down to Franklin Marshall. We win our bracket and we got to play them in the final four. Right, and we have another dog fight and beat them by six or five, eighty six, eighty one, as I recall, and. You know, that year, you know, junior year, we do win the national title. Senior year, we lost uh, our chance to repeat the next day by, by two on a buzzer beater. And um, I will say the emotional battle we had against them the day before. I mean, mm-hmm. again, playing your arch rival, playing the number three ranked team in the country. We were the number one ranked team in the country. Like, it, it was great. I'll never forget it. I'm certainly glad we won six of those eight the last two years and we won all four championship games. I'm proud of that. Yeah. But it definitely took its toll because to me, they were a national championship level team then. They were really good. Yeah. And, and, you know, just for any listeners who don't know, you guys obviously won in 2003, but losing on a buzzer beater in 04, the Duncan Robson led team in 2014 with a bunch of guys led by coach Mike, Mike maker. They also lost on basically a buzzer beater too. So Williams could have had three national championships in the last 20 years two unfortunately on buzzer beaters but just skipping ahead now so so <laughs> you guys try to you, you know after your senior year obviously you mentioned you know you dream of playing overseas just kind of just for any listeners who don't know what's that process like as a coming from a division three program obviously you had a lot of accolades but coming from a division three program just what was that process like of trying to get exposure and trying to get signed by uh, a professional team and kind of just 
kind of just talk briefly about like all the stops you yeah. went on before you ended up in Germany. Yeah, it was a grind. There's no question. I mean, you, you know, you, you know, at that point, you, you know, you can, um, you know, you can play with Division One players. I mean, my senior year, we actually Holy Cross scheduled us in a regular season game, and and we went to the Heart Center and we beat them by eight. Yeah. And, um, and they were pretty good. They were Patriot League champs the year before, and you know, in that game, myself, Ben Koff, and Chuck Abbott, our, our tri captains, you know, I had 23. I think Ben had 21. Chuck had 19. We all played really well. And um, so I mentioned that for two reasons. One, you, know, you finish that year, you know, you mentioned some of the some of the great things our team accomplished. I had some some great years as an individual, and you think I should get attention, I should go to play. But you're still a six foot Division three point guard. Yeah. You know, I'm not <laughs> playing above the rim. I'm not, you know, I, I don't necessarily look the part. And what's you know, if there's a six five kid from Middle Tennessee State, I'm making that up. But who who can play way above the rim? Sometimes that looks a little better on highlight clips. So the Holy Cross coach, Ralph Willard, as well as uh, the coach who, uh, so, so doubling back one bit, we played an exhibition game against the Harlem Globetrotters uh, to open our season on like November 5th on homecoming weekend. Okay. The Globetrotters used to take a competitive team and play against Division One teams as well as Division Two national champs. So our coach got him to come. This was not a... Uh, you know, Sweet Georgia Brown, this song, like, plus in the ball kind of game. I mean, they had, they had future and former pros. Derek Martin was their point guard. He later was a starter in the Western Conference Finals that year for the Minnesota Timberwolves when they lost to the Lakers when Sam mm-hmm. Cassell got hurt. They had Eugene Edgerson, Ron Rollison, Cedric Sabalos, who was the dunk champion, played for Phoenix Suns. So they had a squad, and we played them, and we lost. But, um, but I had a good game there. So the head coach of that team, as well as the Holy Cross coach, were guys that had... Um, said some nice things about me throughout that year. So I'm trying to find a job and I can't really get one. And, um, I got asked to go to the Philippines with a group of division one, two, and I was really the only division three guy myself and Ben Coffin from our team, the only two D three guys. And we went and played against some Filipino basketball PBA teams. And, um, we kind of got our hats handed to us. They were really good players. They had Americans over there too, but it was a great experience to travel halfway around the world. Yeah. And, um, so I did that. I came back and then those coaches who I, I mentioned, they had made some nice commentary. Well, the coach of the, everyone knows them as the, uh, uh the Washington generals, mm-hmm. uh, who play against the Harlem Globetrotters called and, and, and invited me to play with them. They were doing a European tour for a month and a half. We were actually the New York nationals. They used to switch up the name of the team because, Really, the whole thing was all about the Globetrotters. Not supposed to be about anything else. Yeah. So I went over there. It was a hell of an experience. I mean, traveling. I went to 15 countries. I mean, you know, all over. You know, Italy, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Czech Republic, Slovakia. I mean, we, we were in a lot of places, playing games, played on U.S. Navy bases. It was fun, and also as a competitor, you don't like the parts where where it's part show. Yeah. Like offensively, we always went, but defensively. Sometimes the show show guys come in, and um, but I do remember there was one specific game I was we were playing in. Um, I think we were in Dusseldorf in Germany, and um, I hit eight threes in the first half. Now again, you're not always getting guarded, you know, like yeah. crazy. I'm not like I was coming off a bunch of pin downs against you know the best athlete on the team, but I hit eight of them to the point where the crowd was kind of getting excited about what what I was doing. And I'll never forget that halftime. Their coach came into our locker room and he started yelling at me. <laughs> it's not supposed to be about you. And, and I, I had some choice words for him because we never have to not score. That wasn't part of the drill. You know, yeah. we have to sometimes let them do their show. 
So um, I hit three more in the second half. There happened to be a guy from a German team there watching who I had sent a bunch of film to. And that sort of is how I wound up getting the opportunity to play for UBC Munster in, um, in, in Germany, up, up near Cologne, northern Germany. And, uh, and I played the remainder of that year for that team. I went over there shortly thereafter. So awesome. it, it, it was a you know, lot of connects, a lot of people making calls uh-huh. and, and then taking your opportunities and playing. And, um, and that was a great experience to play over there. But it, it, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the simplest, even though we'd had right. great teams and I'd had some pretty good individual success. So, and, and also, once you went over to that team in Germany, you were playing well, but kind of just talk about a little bit that your thought process behind that summer about whether to continue playing or trying to play professional basketball or pursuing the opportunity you end up getting with the Boston Celtics. Yeah, so I was trying to go back and play in, in Portugal. I liked Germany, but I thought mm. maybe I could get a little bit of a better climate. <laughs> and maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe you could try and climb the ranks a little bit. It takes some time in Europe. You have to play well and yeah. try to climb the ladder a little bit. And again, you know, uh, you know, I was a good basketball player, but I wasn't scoring 30 points a game. I, I was a point guard and I scored it, but like, you know, my true, I think, value was being somebody that could make shots but really make plays for, for my teammates. And and um, so I had a good year. I had some other opportunities to go play. When I came back, um, I got, I think it was just like an unpaid internship, you know, working for Danny Ainge, cutting up film, getting ready for the NBA draft. Um, in that draft, we drafted Gerald Green and Ryan Gomes. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, a full-time job opportunity to be the director of player development that was a job that, teams had filled part-time for a while but it had been mandated that that needed to be a full-time role because it had some connectivity with the nba and some programming they were doing in addition to whatever responsibilities each individual organization wanted to place on that person so danny asked me if i would take the job and i was i remember being pretty pretty shocked and excited and um to me playing overseas was fun it was a goal um but there was not much thought process. I, I okay. knew I could play in men's leagues. I had I had teammates that were in Boston. I, I as much as I enjoyed the experience overseas, I, you know, you miss home a little bit. Yeah. You play one game a week over there. It's a it's 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 a bit of a grind mentally. And who wouldn't want to travel around Europe? And it's not like you can just go anywhere you want the weekend practice every day. So it was a really good experience. I mean, as we touched on earlier, I've been playing basketball since I was a kid, and now somebody was paying me to play. That's exactly, a foreign yeah. idea. So I, I thought that was great, but um, but the opportunity to work for an NBA organization, never mind the one I grew up idolizing and yep. rooting for, um, yeah, that was a no-brainer for me. I, I, I took the job happily and uh, was excited to get going. So, Coach, now just for – this is kind of a two-part question, but just so for any listeners who don't know, can, can you kind of explain what the director of player development is? And, and you know, I apologize if, if this is a, a dumb question, but – how does that role vary when you know the first couple of years where you when you're with the Celtics, the team wasn't very good. So there's so so was that so so was that different? You know, trying to develop younger players as well. Yeah. So so it, it's a that's a good question, and it's not a dumb question at all. It's actually a really good question. So for our organization, you know, Danny said, "Hey, I want you to go to all the NBA meetings, whether it was four or five kind of junkets a year. You get information, player development from the NBA standpoint." is not just about on-court, but it's about the off-court development, uh, mm-hmm. helping these guys understand financial things, the impact of drugs and alcohol on athletic performance, all sorts of other factors that are a part of it. And what Danny said to me was, uh, you know, go, we can learn about the things and the programs that they have, 
Uh, but outside of that, I just want you to travel with Doc and the team and basically be another assistant. I'm, I'm not hiring you for your worldly experience because I was 24. <laughs> I'm hiring you because you're a basketball guy. And so for me, as you see in the NBA games, there's four coaches in the front row. There's another yeah. row. There's more coaches. I was one of those suits charting something during the game that may have mattered a lot, may have not mattered a lot. And, um, but it was still a thrill. I mean, yeah. you know, to be, to be there. So yeah, the first two years, I mean, Paul Pierce was the mainstay. Uh, Pierce was there. We, but we, I mean, I, I can give you some names that we have Ricky Davis, which is a name NBA mm-hmm. people may forget. Um, uh, I actually really liked Ricky. He was a good guy, but I mean, young guys, we had, I mean, geez, Rajon Rondo, Al Jefferson, Kendrick Perkins, Ryan Holmes, Gerald Green, Sebastian Telfair, Orion Green. Um, you know, we had a lot of young guys, Tony Allen, Delonte West. And you're right, we were young and we weren't very good. Um, and there was a lot of work we did in practices. I mean, if you have a veteran team that's winning a lot, I don't think you always have to practice as much in the NBA. Right. If you got a young team and you're probably going to lose anyway, you might as well practice harder and longer so they can try to get better. Right. You know? And um, I will say our practice regimes were a little bit different from year to year. Once once we you know get to that third year and we had all the all the vets and all the talented guys, so it was it was different. I spent a lot of time with Rondo. He became a guy that I would do extra shooting with and go in late at night with. And um, you know it was kind of neat to to be a point guard as a player and spend a lot of time with such a talented yeah. young point guard like him. And um, you know, it was great. I mean, it was great. Even though, I'll tell you this, I don't remember being on, uh, like, oh, man, we were losing so much. We're so bad. I remember being around NBA players and thinking that it was great that I had the opportunity to, to work with them. And it was really, uh, it, it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. Can you kind of talk about, so, you know, year one, year two, kind of a struggle on the win-loss record. But, hey, you're drafting high. You're drafting uh, prospects that the team is really interested in. You're getting a chance to work with them. The 2007 draft comes along, and I'm pretty if my memory serves right, you guys selected Jeff Green out of Georgetown. I'm sure you were pumped to kind of work with him and work out with him. Then all of a sudden, all this news starts breaking. You're trading for Ray Allen. You're trading for Kevin Garnett. And then all of a sudden, a lot of the guys who you had developed personal relations with over the last couple of years, Al Jefferson, Sebastian Telfair, Jeff Green, uh, they were no longer in the organization. And all of a sudden, you guys might have been, I, I can't remember if, if in that offseason you guys were the favorites to win the title, but all of a sudden you're one of the best teams in the NBA. Can, can can you kind of talk about just realizing that this is a business and maybe some guys you, you had gotten close to are now being traded and just now you're competing at a, at a whole different level? Sure. Yeah, that, that definitely is tough. You build your relationships. Um, you know, Ryan Gomes is a big one. He was part of that deal. I mean, we traded seven guys for Kevin Garnett. Yeah. So, so you know. That was a, we saw a lot of guys go out the door. Um, you know, to be honest, those relationships, yeah, it, it, it stings a little bit. Um, until your first practice with Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett and those right. guys, and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm now, I now have the ability to interact with, help coach, help work out two more easy, surefire first ballot Hall of Famers in addition 100%. to Paul Pierce, and you realize how good we're going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you, you miss the guys. You realize the business aspect, but much like the players don't have a lot to do with that, I have nothing really to do with that mm-hmm. in, in the sense of, you know, I'm working mostly with Doc. I mean, I would do some scouting stuff in, in the college stuff with Danny, but, uh, you know, I, the big thing that people forget, right, is we had 
the worst, if not the second worst record in the league in 06-7. Yeah. So the ping pong balls are supposed to bounce, giving us the number one or two pick. And Kevin, that draft and Kevin was about Odin and Durant. Yep. And who would you take, right? And Danny was a big Kevin Durant guy. He was yep. not an Odin guy. Um, we know how it went. We didn't get either. You know, we got the fifth pick. And, and you know, Danny... And he did what he does, and he, mm-hmm. and he crafted some trades, and we weren't going to get Garnett unless we got Ray. Kevin wasn't going to wave his claws. No. And, um, you know, it, it, it all all of a sudden came together. Then you throw in the additions of veterans like James Posey, Eddie House, yep. um, you know, later in the year, midseason acquisitions like P.J. Brown and Sam Cassell. Um, you know, we were, we were loaded. We were really, really, really good. And um, I think some people thought it may take a little while to jive. Yeah. And um, you know, but we we, we did our, our training camp that year in Rome and in London, which yeah, is another remarkable experience to be a part of. And those guys really clicked. Mm-hmm. It was a special trip. It was a special group. All egos checked at the door. Kevin and Ray sort of knew it was Paul's team. But anybody who walked in the building, you know, it's Kevin Garnett's culture drive. Like Kevin, yeah. Kevin was on another level. And one of the best things I saw was Paul Pierce, who was always as talented a guy as I've ever seen with basketball. He just, he took it to another level. He practiced harder. He practiced more consistently once Kevin arrived. No yeah. one would ever say that to him. Right, because he's Paul Pierce. Yeah, but it happened. I I know it. I saw it for three years. And Ray was the most professional with his consistent regimen every day. Rondo was such a good player, and with all that talent around him, he could wheel and deal. Perkins, a perfect kind of fifth big guy, and and we could go small with Posey. Eddie House set a three point field goal shooting shooting record for the Celtics that year. Um, you know, toughness off the bench with Leon Poe and PJ Brown and Tony Allen and. Glenn Davis, um, you know, it was, it was a really, really special group and, um, and it just came together 66 and 16 and, yep. and then we went on to win it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it would, yeah, it, it was, it was really, really cool. But I, and I know I've kind of varied from the question about, no, no, it's all what, good. was it, you know, was it, was it different those years? And it was once we had, you know, once we had that team, the, the third year, it, it was player, my role was with them. And I still spent a lot of time with Rondo, but, uh, you know, I didn't have to tell Ray Allen about his footwork coming around. Yeah, to exactly. Three, okay, you know, like he, <laughs> he, he was pretty good already. So, um, yeah, but it, it was it was a spectacular year and, and um, a lot of memories I'll never forget. As you mentioned, sixty six and sixteen had a, had some trouble in the first couple rounds of the playoffs. Yeah, uh, but, Atlanta, man. But Atlanta, and then a Cleveland team that was coming off uh, a trip to the finals. LeBron, that game mm-hmm. seven, LeBron versus Pierce was iconic. But you guys no end up. Making the finals, matchup against the Lakers, you know, for a kid from Massachusetts, it's you know, Lakers Celtics. It, it couldn't have gotten better. Obviously, no. obviously, you know, with Kobe Bryant's passing at the beginning of the year, uh, maybe the the time you got to spend watching him play up close has has kind of a uh, changed or evolved. So just so just what was it like, you know, watching Kobe Bryant and you know whatever your role was in in helping. Uh, to to try you know not stop but contain him and then also just winning the title as a kid from Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, you know, for starters on Kobe, um, you know, 
immense talent. Um, it's funny, you know, we would do scouting reports for every game, every team. In the playoffs, we had a whole scouting binder. Um, but it's funny, if you were just playing, you know, Cleveland on a, on a Tuesday in February, right? He's like, okay, yeah. LeBron James, right? You have the statistics. <laughs> then you have bullets, right, about what he likes to do. Okay? Yeah. And we have so many things, right? You know, loves pick and roll on the left side versus the right side. LeBron James is good to pick and roll anywhere you put him, right? Yeah. So I always found the marquee players' bullets to be kind of funny. And we had these bullets about how Kobe liked to drive right and shoot. Watch out for the shot fake because he'll, he'll put the shot fake up, then take the jumper from the same spot. He can do that. I was like, the bullet should just say, he can do everything, do your best. <laughs> yeah, like, right. You know, reading reading a scout on Kobe Bryant, it's you know, it's kind of comical because it really doesn't matter. I mean, and, 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 and obviously it does. And we were an excellent defensive team. But, you know, all you can do is try to make it hard for him. Right. And then when you do that, he's still often going to beat you. And you're just going to have to tip your cap and try to make it hard again the very next possession. That's it. That's all you can do. Yeah. Um, I couldn't stand him. I couldn't stand the guy. He was so good. He was a Laker, right? So he's yeah. a Laker. So I remember even before, like when I was in college, I was like, oh, I can't stand this guy. The Lakers are winning. I don't, I'm don't. i a Celtics fan. I don't want Lakers to win. And I remember thinking, oh, man, and he ran Shaq out, all these things. I just, I wasn't a Kobe guy. And then all of a sudden, he's tough to stop. And now all of a sudden, I'm like, in some capacity, part of an organization that's trying to stop him. And, um, you know, Obviously, tragic what happened with him, his daughter, and all those families. I can only hope they're doing okay. Uh, yeah, you get to reflect a little bit about sitting in the second row in the NBA Finals, watching Kobe Bryant kick your butt, right. uh, watching our team kick his butt. And the fact that, you know, being a Boston kid and having to be Celtics-Lakers, right? You know, I mean, I, I was born in 81, so I don't really remember those finals. But I've seen them all so many times on classics and things like that. I always think, oh, man. We should have beaten them twice in the eighties too. They didn't get to the finals in eighty six. We of course would have beat them in eighty six, but yeah. you know, they you know, they beat us in eighty five and eighty seven, we beat them in eighty four, you know. And and it's like, you know, that, you know, magic and Larry, who's better, all that stuff you have as a kid growing up and um and then here I am and you know, we're playing at the forum and you know, game game uh five, I, I my dad flew out from Boston because it was Father's Day. Yeah, and once we won game four to go up three to one, big comeback game. Um, so my dad, you got to be out here if we win. Like, you know, my dad, Father's Day, mm-hmm. and uh, we went down big again. We almost came back and won again. I remember, yeah, and um, and uh, and we didn't. And then we came home, and I think just everyone had that feeling we were going to beat them up in game yeah, six. Blew them out. And um, yeah, and just one of those big, big. That was one of those where you knew it was over in the middle of the third quarter kind of games. And yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just incredible, just incredible. That whole experience, that night, the parade, the fact that, you know, I have a national title ring from Williams and then I got to be a part of the team again and get a world championship ring with, mm-hmm. with, a, with the shamrock in my name on it with the Celtics. I mean, it's kind of a dream, dream situation. For sure. And um, yeah, it was a extremely special thing to be a part of. So after that that season, you, you decide to leave the Boston Celtics and you know go into the quote unquote real world. But then for for only one year, and then as, as you mentioned, kind of at, at the top, your dad uh, created the Middlesex Magic program. Kind of just how did you start to to get more involved with that? And then and then also just briefly just describe you know for just for people who don't know about the AAU programs and everything, just kind of where does the Middlesex magic fit in just in the AAU scene or youth basketball programs in just uh, New England? Yeah. 
Um, well, a couple of good questions there. So we finish and I was 26 and I enjoyed my time in the NBA. I enjoyed my time in the Celtics. I met so many good people. But you also realize the grind and yeah. kind of the nomadic nature of being a coach in the NBA. Like you have to be willing to move around the country at a moment's notice on a whim. That that and quite frankly, you don't really control your own destiny unless you become a star. And um, I wasn't. I didn't think I could get there, but I, I wasn't sure I was exactly what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having the opportunity to coach with my dad. So I still had my basketball fix and then sort of, as you said, enter the real world, take a job opportunity in, in the business field, which I guess is just something I thought I'd do at some point coming out of Williams. Yeah. You know, I guess that part of me, I think David was like, okay, I could have went anywhere in the world and coach basketball. I'm not saying I would have been as good a basketball coach because Williams taught me so many things that impact my, me as a person every day, me as a coach, me as a parent, everything. Um, but I, you know, there was a little bit of that, right? And, and you're a Nescat guy and, you know, there's all these great schools and you, you kind of have this idea, maybe I should try something, you know? And, and I did. And I started coaching a team with my dad and with my uncle. And um, it, was a, it was a younger age team. And we had this young player, pretty athletic guy by the name of Pat Connaughton on the mm-hmm. team. And, um, and I'm coaching him and he's really good. And, and I'm like, oh, this is fun. And uh, we have a great year and he has some great heroics down in Orlando in, in 2009 and then um, we're getting ready for like tryouts in the start of the year in 2010 and and uh, and my dad passed on February 2nd um, you know he had to get actually was a cancer survivor mm-hmm. and he had had a heart procedure years after cancer when the cancer was 30s he was doing great um, the only issue is he had, they had removed his spleen when they did some exploratory stuff when he had cancer and he got an infection the source we'll never know and it inflicted his blood and, uh, and he became septic and he passed in 16 hours. It was a really, really bad time for our family. And, um, he was, uh, you know, a father, a best friend. Uh, it was a lot, you know, for me, my mom, my sister, it was a lot for the kids he coached because he had started the magic in 93. And, um, so I kept the program going, uh, but to, to get to the point of, part of your question about sort of where the magic was like he was a pioneer like he was he was a you know new england aau hall of famer they had inducted him um he was a guy that really helped grow it when it was very very small in the early 90s the magic in our area in massachusetts and beyond and in new england it has a really had a had a, had a fantastic reputation mm-hmm. um not every player on our on our 17 u team was playing in college but most were yeah and um we probably had about 14 to 15 teams overall boys um and my dad had, had some excellent players on the division one players on division two II, division three players and, and he had established it as a as a really premier northeast east coast program we had gone to nationals all, all over the country since i was playing when i was 12 so anyway um that's where the magic was and i you know i kept it going we had our tryouts he just kind of kept just kind of kept pushing forward that team with pat um had a just a kind of a storybook year yeah we did everything we set out to do with my dad um my dad's memory kind of being a big part of it and mm-hmm. pat's pat's rise in july was sort of uh, there were two big names going on down at the AAU nationals one was pat Connaughton, and one was a guy by the name of anthony davis i'm right. not so sure how, how he's done i think he's doing okay <laughs> but um you know pat wound up with 30 40 high major division one offers he of course went to notre dame played baseball, played basketball, and here he is in year five in the NBA on a on a 
title contender with the Bucks. But, you know, what I had to make the decision after, after that year, I, I said to myself, you know, I know I love basketball. I know I, I, I love coaching. What I realized in that year was that being able to help impact kids at that age, mm-hmm. uh, where I think it's really vital, 15, 16, 17, help really try to shape the trajectory of their basketball lives and, and help them find college. My dad developed that passion late in right. life. I mean, he, he was a he worked at Polaroid. He did his job. He did what he had to do for him. He started the magic because we learned about AAU and I played a year with a team. And he's like, okay, I, I think they're okay, but I think I can do this. And yeah. it wasn't he just started as a passion to help kids and and i had that same passion i think the question for me just became is it something we can try to grow and scale as i you know hope to get married and have a family you know my dad started this at the back end of his of his uh you know career and so um that's what we set out to do and um you know between now and then 10 years um We've tripled in size. You know, yeah. We're in the mid-40s of teams. We have a girls' program now. We have teams in Rhode Island and Connecticut. Awesome. Um, we have we have some great depth at our age groups. We have really high-level high school teams. We have developmental young teams. We have teams mm-hmm. that are, and people want to call them A, B, C. I, I don't really letter them, but if you're a fifth grader, yeah. you shouldn't be told you're, you're not good enough to play anymore. You, you make a team, you develop your skills, you work. Sometimes the fifth grader on the third best team in your program winds up being the best player in the eighth grade. And also, or, or the tenth grade. And, yeah. and also too, at fifth grade, a big part of it too is like, you still want to play with your friends. So, so if you should be on the A team, but like, you know, if all your friends right. are on the B team, like, you know, play with the B team. You're, it's still basketball. It's fun at fifth grade. That's right. There's a lot of things. People, late elementary, early middle school can be a time when parents get a little, they get a little nutty about where their kid is and when right. they belong. And we try to just say to them, hey, look, if you want to be part of an organization that's going to help your kid get better individually, it's going to help your kid understand team dynamics and, and how to play, you know, offense and defense schematically together, um, then come here. And and when they look up to the high school level and they see the, the great success of our high school teams and the, and the great success of our high school players matriculating into college, that's definitely a sell as they look up the ladder. Um, so it's been, you know, so now where's the magic? Um, you know, we're, we're not a, a sneaker sponsored team, mm-hmm. but the hoop group was one of the premier tournament runners for decades, started a circuit three years ago called the hoop group showcase league, the HGSL, um, teams from all over the country. Uh, you, you gain points throughout tournaments in the spring into the summer to have a championship. Our 17s have won it all three years. It's, it's been in existence, which is um, which is a thing some we're very proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's people that do rankings here and there. I don't really much know what they mean. One year, I think we ranked in the top 25 programs in the country. I, I don't know what that means, David. All I yeah. know is we get really good players, um, and we get guys that are all about a team, and we really try to distinguish ourselves by being a, a, a group of really talented players but who play the game together. Mm-hmm like we are a college team. I say to them all the time, we're not a, quote, AAU team. AAU gets connotation of up and down, one-on-one, yeah. uh, selfish ball. And I say, that's not us. And if that's how you want to play, you're not going to have a good home here. And um, when the guys buy into it, we've had some really, really remarkable success. We've had some really, really good players. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's just been a, it's been a joy for me Coaching basketball for any team would be great. For me, I'm coaching for a team I played for, for an organization my dad started, and I'm trying to do my best to further his legacy. And that makes the Middlesex Magic really unique because I don't think there's a lot of AAU programs that have that same lineage and have right. that same connectivity. And um, 
now it's my job, my passion, my life. It's, it's every day. And, um, I love it. You mm-hmm. know, it's a, it's a pretty tough time right now with everything yeah. everyone's going on in the world. It's not a, it's not a normal year for anything. Never mind uh, AAU basketball, but, um, but I know that I'm, I'm working hard and our organization is working hard to help our kids and provide safe environments for them to play and to help our juniors try to get to the next level. So, Coach, you know, a, a lot of people think that the only good AAU teams are on the sneaker circuits because that's where we see, like, a lot of the top 10 players in the country play. And just, you know, I guess can can you kind of talk about, you know, just if, if you know what your relationship with is with the sneaker circuit teams and, and kind of how you kind of – talk to your players about the the difference of levels between where you guys are playing in the hoop group summer league versus trying to go play at EYL, EYBL. Cause I think a lot of times guys in high school say, Hey, if I want the maximum exposure, it's EYBL or nothing, you know, in a way. So, right. so can you, so, so can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Of course. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, it is Look, the, the sneaker aspect of AU is a big part of it. I think not surprisingly, Nike kind of leads the way, um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and there's probably a million reasons why I think the biggest one is marketing. I mean, every kid kind of grows up thinking that swoosh is a cool thing. You had Michael Jordan. There's a lot of, there's right. a lot of stuff that goes into it for us. Um, we've had some conversations before with Under Armour, other things like, you know, you're of course intrigued and this was probably 2011, 12. And then you realize for me anyway, I don't want to be under anybody's thumb, right? If, yeah. if, if, if we're sponsored, there may be some players I think are good for my team, and maybe they say no because they want to. We want you to get more top 100 ranked guys because the idea there is, the more people that wear their sneaker in high school, maybe they'll choose to wear their sneaker when they're a pro because that's going to help make them money. Yeah. Um, oddly, LeBron James's high school team was Adidas, yep. St. Vincent, St. Mary. I always remember that he chose Nike. Um, I coached a guy Pat Connaughton. He grew up a big sneaker guy, loved the Nikes. Goes to Notre Dame. First two years, they're Adidas. He can't wear Nikes around campus. The second two years, they switch to Under Armour. Can't wear Nikes. He goes to the NBA. Who did he sign with? Nike. Yeah. I mean, there is a pull, right? There's, they've done a great job of marketing worldwide, and they had a guy named Michael Jordan and LeBron James and Tiger Woods, and they're, they're special. When it comes to AAU basketball, you know, we play on this hoop group circuit, right? And, you know, every year we get to play at least five to seven games against quote-unquote sneaker teams, and you know, it used to be that there was a bit of a talent gap. They'd have a little more talent, but we'd play better together and we'd win a lot. They'd win some, you know, 50-50. Now we're at the point with the magic where some sneaker teams have gone away. Uh, some sneaker teams aren't as strong. And I don't really think there's as much of a talent gap with our yeah. top group. I mean, last year, six guys going to play Division One for us. This year, four guys already committed to play Division One, and we haven't even played AAU yet, right? So when you look at those things you start to see that there's there's not as much of a delta in the talent. And then beyond that, if we're playing as a team and if we're doing things in a way that perhaps they are not, I'm not saying they all don't, but, you know, the way we play gives us, you know, another advantage. And so there is that kind of uh, idea, hey, it's a sneaker, that's where you need to be. For us, we've never had a player who we couldn't help satisfy their needs. We've had guys play at Notre Dame and mm-hmm. Stanford and Michigan and Maryland and a bunch of other places. And, you know, against popular thoughts, sometimes if you want to get to that level and you're not LeBron James, who is like, you're going to go no matter what, 
I think finding the right AAU team is actually really important. Now you can't pick a mom and pop shop who's never had a player go D one. Yeah. But with the magic, Pat Connaughton was a perfect fit. You know, Duncan Robinson was a perfect fit. Cormac Ryan was a perfect fit. Um, you know, we've had some guys make it to that level. And I think we have others in the magic program now that are on their way. And it's, uh, I think the right thing, just like college, I think, Picking the right AU team is about finding the right fit right. where they believe in you, they want you to play. And uh, for us, I love doing it the way we do it. I, I don't want to be told how to do it. Uh, I'm not saying where they're rejecting, you mm-hmm. know, sneaker offers. I'm not saying that at all. But I have not sought them out, you know. And and we have some guys in the NBA where we could probably try to use some connects. It's not what I do at all. I'm thrilled they're there. I don't know if we'll ever have another NBA guy. I believe we will. I believe there's one in the making already. Um, but with that being said, that that doesn't matter. I don't have somebody lording over. You're not going to get right. your contract if you don't have ten guys go to the Big Ten and the ACC. That that's that's not us. I get to do it the way we want to make the teams the way we want to, and uh, and we're thrilled when people make it to the spot they're supposed to go to. And, uh, you know, so it's a, it is a little bit different. It's, it's a part of sort of that AAU world, but, uh, I love where we are and we love competing against those guys. It's been, uh, it's always a great challenge, but, uh, we've been, we've been highly successful as well. So I want to quickly ask you about Pat Connaughton because you, because you've had, you know, the, the two AAU uh, guys you've coached in AAU who've gone to make the NBA kind of had, you know, very unique journeys and, and everyone likes to focus on Duncan Robinson and sees the story of, of the NBA this season. But I think Pat Conton's story kind of has gotten forgotten in the shuffle in which when he was in high school and when he was in college, he was probably a better baseball player than he was basketball player. You know, I think he got picked in the fourth round by by Baltimore. He was throwing mm-hmm. mid, mid-90s. He could have easily been one of these awesome bullpen arms that we see in this arms race in Major League Baseball right now. And he might be in the baseball bubble rather than the nba bubble right right, <laughs> right. now so so yeah. can, so can you so can you kind of talk about just coaching pat in aau i i, I know you talked about uh a little bit but, th- but then also trying to help balance him with his baseball goals as well because we see so much specialization right now in players that it's rare to have a two-sport athlete in his 17u aau season yeah no that's true so so the first thing about what makes that easy uh, is Len and Sue Connaughton. His parents are the best. They would take him everywhere and anywhere. Um, the second thing is makes it easy is Pat's remarkably ridiculous talent level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was a pitcher too, right? So he didn't have to play every day in baseball. That was mm-hmm. another factor. Um, but Len would always say, I mean, look, Pat, Pat loves baseball. I think it's pretty evident basketball is his first love as based upon his choices because he could have went into the major league farm system and skip Notre Dame. The New York Yankees said they'd take him with the, their first pick in the, in the draft out of high school in 11, which was a second round pick yeah. and offered him seven figures to sign. And he said, really appreciate it. I'm going to Notre Dame. Um, he, he wound up getting drafted by San Diego in the late round as a flyer. Of course he went to Notre Dame. Then you got to wait three years. And he was indeed, as you said, drafted in the fourth round by the Baltimore Orioles. Um, and he pitched, seven weeks of summer ball that summer said i want to go back to notre dame get my degree finish my basketball career i said no problem uh probably thinking it's not like he's going to go to the nba right and uh and here we are five years later and he's still cranking and carving out a great role for himself but pat 
Patch is as special a human being as I've met. I mean, he's the most unselfish, team-oriented guy. Everyone loves him. Yes, there's confidence as there is with any great athlete, but it never borders cocky. Everybody gravitates toward him, and he made it easy. I can't remember big games that he ever missed. They would schedule things. They would move around and make it happen. And, um, and yeah, you're right. There were a lot of people that thought he should have just went to – play baseball somewhere yeah you know you're six five you're super athletic you throw mid 90s maybe you'll have maybe you'll have a hundred million dollar contract someday in baseball you know maybe but one thing that's interesting is in baseball it takes years to get to the bigs most right. of the time in basketball you either make it there or you know i guess now you have the g league and some other things but pat got drafted right so yeah he's there and and his earning power is more with basketball at a younger age you can't go play baseball and come back to basketball Mm-hmm. If basketball were to flame out for him, he could still go try and play baseball. He's a young man with an underworked elbow and an underworked shoulder who throws yeah. hard. And so he's just balanced it brilliantly. He was a perfect candidate to be a Notre Dame guy. You know, I, I, I believe he should go up in the ring of honor there one day, him and Jaron Grant leading that team to the Elite Eight almost to the Final Four, bringing Notre Dame basketball to, to the pinnacle it's been. And um, But for me, when I coached him, easy as could be. Um, you know, I remember a game, I'll give you an example of how great a guy Pat is. We were playing the Alabama challenge, Nike sponsored team down in Florida. We had white and blue uniforms. We had to be white that day. We were on the top of the bracket. It's four minutes left. We're wearing our blues and warms. Like you guys have to go white. Pat looks at me and goes, my white jersey's back at the hotel. So he tells his dad, his dad goes running up. So we're getting ready to start the game. We're decidedly undermanned against these guys. Yeah. And one of our players in front of me and Pat's like, coach, why don't you just have Pat wear my jersey? And before I could say no, Pat's like, absolutely not. There's no way. So it was quarters then. Yeah. And at the end of the first quarter, we were down 17 to four. And Pat's dad came and threw a fastball over the jersey across the way. I checked Pat into the game. He wound up going for 29 and 15. We won the <laughs> game by one. And uh, Anthony Grant, who was the coach at Alabama then, we know his path since and how great a chance they would have had this year in the NCAA tournament with Dayton. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he was speaking to me after the game. And interestingly enough, I had met him when I was with the Celtics when he was an assistant at Florida. Um, we worked out Joe Kim Noah. And, um, <clears throat> and he said, uh, hey, tell me about the kid Connaughton. Like, why didn't, how come you didn't play him? I said, you know, we actually like to sit him the first quarter and lull other teams in a false <laughs> sense of security. And he goes, really? I said, no, he left his jersey at home and we started laughing, you know, but that's Pat. He, yeah. He was never going to tell you, it was not a chance he was going to wear somebody else's jersey because Tim, everybody matters the same. And so coaching him was a joy. Um, he, he did things uh, no other player I've ever ever coach could do uh his will to win and um it was just special yeah and um i think he's gonna be in the nba for for 10 plus years and i'll tell you what i think when he's done i think he's gonna pitch and i think he's gonna pitch in the big leagues yeah and I, i'm a big time believer in him and by the time he's done playing basketball he might be 33 4 5 in the nba but i would never put anything past him that's a young man i would never bet against he's just special he he also might be joining you with his with his own nba ring in, in a few months now as Milwaukee is the favorite in the Eastern Conference. Now, uh, obviously, the, obviously yeah. the, the success of Pat in the NBA, the success of Duncan, kind of just how has that kind of affected the Middlesex Magic as a program? Is, is your inbox just flooded with highlight tapes of every uh, kid in New England who wants to come play with you thinking, hey, if, if I 
team up with Coach Karate and the Magic. I'm going to make the the NBA, or or kind of do, or kind of does it make your job harder in, in terms of uh, selecting with the tryout process of of who's going to play on your top top teams? Uh, you know, I'd say a little bit of both. I mean, look, I, I, having Pat and and Duncan as Magic alums, uh, ambassadors for the program, guys that are great. They come back, they'll practice with our team, they'll spend time with some of our players. That's just really special to have. For me, uh, I'm not over. I'm not over leveraging that. These guys are family to me. These are guys who were at my wedding. You know, mm-hmm. I had a table of former players at my wedding. They're, they're family, and I just want the best for them. We're not trying to leverage them to get the next guy. We're not trying to leverage them for sponsorship or anything yep. like that. That's real. With that being said, yeah, of course. I mean, there's probably effects I don't even know. There's probably people that came and tried out because of them that mm-hmm. I'm never even going to know. They didn't even tell me that's why they came. Um, but I think when we touched on earlier about sneaker and non-sneaker, well, if you look at all the teams in New England and say who has the most guys in the NBA, we're right there with everyone else. And in fact, we're ahead of most New England 100%. programs who don't have one or any. Yeah. So I think if you look at that, the best part is to say, well, hey, can can I go to Georgetown or Syracuse or Louisville or Notre Dame or UCLA through the Magic? Like, well, they got two guys in the NBA, so you tell me. Right. I think yeah. if, if you are good enough – our program provides the platform for you mm-hmm. to do absolutely anything. Um, and, and not every program can say that. They really can't. And so we, we feel like that's pretty special as it pertains to maybe making my job harder. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I, def, I get a lot of moms and dads, kids themselves, high school coach saying, hey, please look at this guy. Hey, please look at this guy. What we've been able to do that is special to us, David, is we've been able to really deepen the amount of, uh, you know, how, how deep we are at the junior age level. Yeah. So we have four junior boys teams this year. We have over 30 college prospects next year. Uh, you know, incoming freshmen, we have 29 committed, uh, you know, rising seniors who are going to play in college. There's a 30th who's still kind of making his choice here going late next year. I think we'll be over 30. Now, obviously there's some things to deal with COVID and, and when yeah. things are going to start, but, but we have, four very good teams full of college level players the top group yeah we have four guys committed to d1 already um might that be the most talented group yeah it might be but our our other teams are fantastic 100 percent. we do close scrimmages all the time and you, you don't always know who's going to win it, right it's, it's right great. so so that's one of the things we've done and, and one of the effects that i know guys like you know pat and duncan amongst many others have um really positively affected our program i think uh yeah and 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 you know this year of course pat in the dunk contest Duncan mm-hmm. in the three-point contest right I mean, right i know for sure there's no team in new england that's ever had a guy in both of those contests. <laughs> so that that's that's a fact and, and we try not to belabor it or go nuts about it obviously we give them their their support and their love on our social media platforms and yeah. our website and stuff but we never try to oversell it because here's the deal you got to be really, really good. We can help, but you yeah. got to be really, really good. I, I'll joke. People be like, "Oh, what was it like to coach Duncan and Pat?" I'm like, "Well, when I coached Pat, he could barely jump, and when I coached Duncan, he could barely shoot. But other than that, it was great." You know? <laughs> and, and they laugh, right? Because no, these guys were great players, of course, when they were 15, 16, 17 years old. But um, I know we did help. I know we were a big part of the journey. But we just couldn't be more proud of what they continue to do. I mean, they're just they're special guys. So, Coach, I appreciate it all the time. I, I have a couple final questions before we get to a, a few fun ones at at the end. Sure. You know, you know, just from my own AAU experience, and, and I think a, with with AAU, we're seeing a lot of overuse injuries because guys are playing so many games, coming off the high school season of twenty to thirty games. Then 
then spring and summer, you know, some of the top, top programs and the top guys are playing maybe 60 to 90 games that summer, also in very short periods of time. Just kind of how do you, as 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 the program director for the Magic, kind of balance the practice versus game issue? And just do you think guys are playing too many games during the spring and summer? Yeah, I mean, it, that's an interesting one. You know, I mean, so we we have a bit of a plan in terms of what we do on a typical year for play, mm-hmm. whether we play seven, eight tournaments in the spring. And then you're, you know, the other thing though, David is in the last couple of summers, they've cut down the live period. Yeah. So we've had less, you know, two summers ago, we had a, we had an extraordinary team. We were 21 and one in the summer. Last summer we went nine and one, which was another great summer. But think about that right there. That, that Delta of, of 12 games is, I mean, that's immense. And um, so I think, it's something we're aware of. It's something we, we, uh, do a lot to, to circumvent. We don't want guys being overused. I mean, now I think back to when I was 17 and some days we play four games and I feel like it's talked about more now, Yeah. but I think kids are, they're weight training. They're doing a lot of things that, you know, I'm 39 years old. I wasn't doing that when I was 15. You get right. kids out there lifting weights every day at 15. That's good. They're strengthening but the body can only take so much overall. So we're very cognizant of it. It's something that we're not, we're not attempting to, to really be a part of. We're trying to trying to overly push our guys. We want them to get the right amount of games against the right competition in front of the right coaches. But um, we have not found that to be an issue on our end because I think if it's managed well by your, by your club team, it should not be an issue. Gotcha. So, so kind of just, just my last question before we get into the fun ones. Obviously, Coach, the, the coronavirus has upended just every aspect of, of normal, everyday life. Usually, you know, the April's alive period, you guys would have been playing in hoop group tournaments, guys would get exposure, and including in the summer, right. you know, July is known as the biggest live recruiting period. Obviously, that's changed. One of the things yeah. that, that you guys have done is you've been putting it out on YouTube and Twitter and, and all this great stuff of, you know, former players like Cormac Ryan or either coaches like yourself are doing videos of, Hey, here's, here's a quick drill you could do today, you know, to get a hundred makes in. Right. So that's all great stuff. But, but also just for the guys in your program, kind of, how are you adjusting this COVID AAU season where trying to get these guys exposure, trying to help get these guys get better when the, their level of resource access could vary dramatically. It's a great question, you know, and, and like everybody, we're doing our best on the fly. So we did start with that virtual training where for 50 days we were producing like homegrown content from myself, other coaches, alumni like Cormac and others who you mentioned and sending them out to our program at large so that their kids had drills they could do, uh, you know, ball handling if they had access to a hoop, um, shooting drills, uh, things of that nature. We had strength and conditioning partnership with somebody who was sending that out every day. So we were trying to actually deliver content in that regard. Um, and that's to the masses, right? Like third through eighth grade, you know, like, geez, you just want them to be able to play. You want to be able to get exercise. You want to be able to work on their game. When it comes up to my juniors, the four teams I you know, mentioned prior, yeah, I mean, it, there's a couple of things. One, you know, this is year 27 for the Magic. My dad had relationships. I built relationships. So I said to a lot of the juniors, I said, hey, maybe the fact that you play for the Magic will matter more now than it ever did because yeah. – yeah, they're going to watch film, but they're going to they're going to trust our judgment because, you know, we, we've had a lot of guys go on and do it. And and we're always honest. Right. You know, we haven't lied about players, say they're good enough. They take them and then they're not good enough and then they don't trust you. Like they understand that that we know how to evaluate and, and try to help our guys find the right fit, not just the highest level, but the right fit. So, you know, four guys committed at the Division One level. 
many other juniors to come. We've done a ton of Zooms with families. Um, we've had college coaches come to the practices that we've been able to start doing, which have just been non-contact skill-based, but they can still see the guy in person, see his work ethic, see his body development, all those things that matter that you can't, you know, you don't see as great on a high school film shot from the middle of the stands. You know, it's yeah. different. The in-person is, is huge. So we've had guys do that. Now you have leagues that are saying they can't come and watch. So um, I'm about to put the finishing touches on a, on a PDF I can send to all coaches, which will have all the requisite information about a player, statistics, contact information, link to his highlights, um, yeah. information about what That's he's great. done. We're trying to do as much as we can do to help the coaches get to know our guys, mm-hmm. um, know who they are as players, but more importantly, almost know, know who they are as people. Cause I think that that's a huge part of, of recruiting is knowing you got a talented person, but someone that's going to fit your culture and we're doing everything we can. Um, the news seems to change by the day of whether yep. we'll be able to play somewhere in the summer. Can you play in this state? Can you play in that state? We're just, we're doing our best. Our guys are going to get there because they are really, really good. And we are, you know, our staff and me in particular doing everything I can to sort of bridge the gap with them and coaches and try and connect them. And, um, you know, we're, we're hopeful that the world gets better and that things can start to return to, to some of the sense of, of normalcy that we've enjoyed. And, um, not sure when that's going to be, but, but we're working hard so that our guys can have every opportunity when it does. For sure. So, Coach, I appreciate all the time. I have five rapid-fire fun questions for, rapid for the end here. Here we go. Number all one, right. what's your favorite drill to do with your AU team? Ooh, favorite drill. That's a good question. Oh, this is supposed to be rapid-fire, so I'll try to go quick. <laughs> um, so uh, I like to do three-on-two with help. A lot of people do three-on-two, okay. two-on-one. Those breaks almost never exist. So we do a little three-on-two with a chaser or with a help drill. That's a yeah. fun one to get going. We then have a shooting progression of two lines where we'll do uh, consecutive shooting. We'll do, you know, loops, fades, back doors, a lot, lot of offensive stuff to start our practice. Those are fun ones to do. Maybe the most important we do, though, is, is to dig in on our shell drill progression and make sure yeah. that we're going to play defense because a lot of teams in our realm will commit to playing defense. So there's a bunch of them for you. I'll give quicker answers on the next four, I promise. You know, you, you coach a lot of <laughs> games in, in the AU summer. Do you have any pregame superstitions? I had more superstitions as a player than I do as a coach, but um, I think one would simply be Bill Bill Boyle, who was 74 years old, played at Marquette, used to help my dad, helps me, and Chris Giordano, who's a couple years younger than me, played for my dad. We coached together. Billy's always to my left, Chris always to my right, and there's definitely a little high-five routine where I go down the line with my (laughs) right hand and come back the line with my left hand right before I sit down. So that's one. That's awesome. This, This one might be a tough one, but just the best player you have ever coached against. Best player I've ever coached against. Oof, I've coached against some good ones. Donovan Mitchell is a good one. Okay. Um, I don't even know how to say this young man's last name, but in recent years, he's at West Virginia. His name is Oscar, and then it's like T W I S B. He's a he's like a six seven six eight forward for Huggins. Mm-hmm. He'll be a pro. He was remarkable. Press Virginia. Um, yeah, West Virginia. I think it's like Oscar Schwebe. I, I don't know how to say his last okay. name. I should learn it now because he was fantastic. <laughs> we were able to beat them. Donovan Mitchell, we were not able to beat, and he was absolutely remarkable. So those yeah. are those are two that come to mind right now. If you could change one rule just about high school or AU basketball, what would you change? Um, I'd put a shot clock in. Okay. Um, usually you don't need it in AAU. Uh, 
two years ago, we had beaten a team out of New Jersey three times pretty handily. Last year, we played them in a tournament, and they, they held the ball a lot. Yeah. So I think putting a shot clock in, it's a near impossibility the way these tournaments are scaled, though, uh, David, because you just you can't get 35 shot clocks across 35 courts in a convention center. It's like yeah. that would be a lot. Um, that would be one. And um, we got a lot of really good shooters, so I'd like to put in a four-point line. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but but, but if we, sometimes we shoot some deep ones. But uh, no, I, I think the shot clock would be a good one. Your experience on the AAU circuit, the last one here. I have I I've been to a bunch. I, I have my favorites and my and my least favorites. Just what's your favorite AAU event to go to every summer? Every summer would be the the hoop group uh, jam fest. Uh, usually it's at Spooky Nook. Yep. Um, Spooky Nook's just a just a great environment. So many courts, perfect setting for coaches. Um, that's become one you know the aau nationals used to be one when we go to the milk house and the Justin center where all the nba guys are now mm-hmm. um that tournament's become a little less prominent right now um and two years ago zero gravity ran a tournament called the prime event and they did it down at the convention center in july okay. and um and that's when we played oscar and we played some other teams and we were able to win it and uh that was a great one too and and, and you said summer in the spring, the Pittsburgh Jam Fest is great by Hoop Group. That, that's just a that's just a great one. Every time I get to Pittsburgh in April, I you just feel like you're in it. It's time it's time to get the AE year started. So th- those are my favorites for sure. That's awesome. Well, well Coach, I really appreciate all the time. Uh, hoping for the best this summer for the AAU. As always, we give, we, we give the last word to our to our featured guests. So is, is there anything you want to shout out to the Magic family or, or anyone in you know the greater Massachusetts New England area where uh, where you serve with the program? Well, for starters, I just want to thank you. I think you're doing a great job with your podcast. I wish you nothing but the best of luck with it. If there's ever anything I can do to help our program, can you just let me know? And then, yeah, I, just, I guess what I would say to all our Magic players and parents and the Magic family is just keep hanging in there. It's obviously a challenging time right now. We're not getting to do everything we want to do, but tough people will persist. Our program will persist. We've been around a long time, and we can't wait to come out the other side of this thing even better and even stronger. And uh, we look forward to keeping – the hard work going now and, and seeing the fruits of our labor when uh, when the time comes. For sure. Really appreciate all the time, Coach. My pleasure. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you your podcast. You can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.